Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 5th, 2013. This is one of those days where I just don't feel ready to come on the air. (laughs) It's not for lack of preparation. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles and see if God's Word is being rightly handled, if the person teaching us from the Word of God is giving it to us what it says in context, what it really means, what God the Holy Spirit really truly revealed there. And sadly, um, what you will find in listening to the archives of Fighting for the Faith or listening on a daily basis is that um, I have no problem finding um, popular, and I mean extremely popular, pastors, preachers, teachers, and popular Christian authors who aren't telling us the truth about what God's Word says, but instead are twisting God's Word and giving us a message that is different, contrary, and oftentimes actually radically opposed to what the biblical message of the gospel is. Now, all of that being said, we're still in the uh, the aftermath of yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yesterday, I had the uh, opportunity to interview slash debate. It was it was kind of a it was a spirited conversation, and I and I provided and you know what I really wanted to do yesterday was provide a good, well thought out and hard-hitting cross-examination of the facts being put forward by Joseph Atwill and the covert Messiah folks, and uh, and as well as model what it looks like for it to be spirited, but never crossing the line into mean-spirited. Um, and hopefully you saw at the end there that uh, what really motivated me was uh, not a hatred of Joseph Atwill, but a concern for his very soul. Uh, so much so that I told him about his crucified and risen Savior, the one that he was denying even existed, the one he had concocted some bizarre 
theory about that uh, that completely uh, overlooks all of the historical data that we have, and uh, and so and if you listen to the uh, program yesterday, then you're also aware that I dropped a little bit of a bomb that was given to me by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. This is absolutely true. In fact, one of the things we're going to do today, I'm going to start off with doing an extended email segment where I want to, you know, Pastor Charmley, uh, from time to time, he goes on these email sprees. We get, you know, he'll sit at his computer and just go into an email storm mode, if you would. And uh, there is a storm of emails that uh, Pastor Charmley sent regarding uh, Joseph Atwill and the covert Messiah based upon the segments that we did in previous episodes of Fighting for the Faith. And um, rather than read them prior to my interview with Joseph Atwell, I purposely held on to them and uh, and uh, intended to uh, read them today as in a, in, in a way to kind of debrief a little bit about uh, my conversation slash spirited debate ish thing that I had with uh, Atwill yesterday. Um, so that's what we're going to do uh, in in today's first hour of the program. In fact, we're going to do a few things today. Um, we're going to do an extended email segment uh, working through the emails uh, with Pastor Charmley that he sent me uh, that I think will be helpful in, uh, you know, kind of unpacking what happened yesterday and what's going on there. Then uh, we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, um, the Charismatics uh, <laughs> have started a strange forest fire. I, I think that's the right way of putting it. Uh, what we're going to be listening to when we come back from the break is we're going to be listening to um, a prophecy. I, you know, we we do these segments from time to time called Pierce's Ponderous Prophecies. And if you're familiar with Chuck Pierce, he's a new apostolic reformation guy. He claims to be uh, one of the restored 12 apostles on the earth. And uh, his uh, website is gloryofzion.org. And at gloryofzion.org, uh, they, whenever somebody is uttering a prophetic word directly from God the Holy Spirit, it ends up being recorded on video and archived. And so you can actually go back into the archives there and uh, listen to, uh, apparently, the direct prophetic utterances of God the Holy Spirit through the prophets at uh, Glory of Zion, and uh, that, which would include Chuck Pierce. And apparently, the Strange Fire Conference uh, that was uh, recently concluded a couple weeks ago out there, uh, put, up by, put on by Grace to You Ministries and John MacArthur, um, you heard uh, last week Phil Johnson's fantastic lecture. Still, I still maintain it's the, the, probably the most important lecture delivered this century. It's just that good. Um, and you had the opportunity to hear that last week. Well, well, now you're going to hear um, the <clears throat> a charismatic utterance from God the Holy Spirit, and I have to put that in air quotes because this isn't really God the Holy Spirit speaking. Uh, you know, that's basically threatening to launch a strange forest fire, if you would. And so, we'll take a listen to that, and uh, and then we'll also do a, a David Crank update. There's a segment. Uh, that I want you to hear from a recent sermon of his, and it, it, the, the, basically it's about being on mission. And when you hear what he does with this particular passage of Scripture during this sermon, you're going to be scratching your head going, you what? <laughs> yeah, I know. And then in hour number two, uh, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Brian Houston out there at uh, Hillsong in uh, in Sydney, Australia. 
And the name of the sermon that we're going to be uh, listening to is entitled Areas That We Can Expect God's Overflow in Our Lives. So um, are you experiencing underflow in your life? I mean, are there certain segments of your life? You see, when I, whenever I hear something like this, the, the, the visual that comes to my mind is uh, those old ice cube trays. Now, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you still have those old fill up your fill them up yourself ice cube trays, uh, but you know, because now we live in the day where we're you know refrigerators have the automatic ice machines. Uh, but back in the day when I was growing up, if you wanted ice, you had to fill up the ice cube tray, and so you'd take the ice cube tray out and take it over to the sink and fill it up. And, and, and so what I like to do when I was a kid, and of course, when I would be forced to fill them up, because of course, my mother would always complain, there's no ice in the house because you boys are not filling up the ice cube trays. <laughs> yeah, because that takes work. You know, I don't want to have to work so hard. So when I was forced to be grudgingly under threat of punishment, uh, fill up an ice cube tray. One of my favorite things to do was to t- hold it under the tap and fill up just one, one square. And then let it overflow and let the overflow flow into the other ice cube. <laughs> you know, this is – there's probably some psychologist out there going, okay, let's write this down. Ooh, that tells me something about Chris's bizarre personality. Hmm, he has a disorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, you, if you've uh, – I diagnosed me with a personality disorder based upon how I used to fill up ice cube trays. I won't challenge it. It's probably true, but <laughs> – Anyway, so when I hear the, you know the name of a sermon, areas that we can expect God's overflow in our lives, I, it's like they take our lives and throw them into these different ice cube tray compartments. And so, you know, let me look over here. Compartment um, that has to do with money. Uh, that's not so. That's not overflowing. Health. Uh, yeah, well, it's getting it's it's filling up because um, you know, I'm losing weight. You know, and you know, and then you know, behaved children. No, that 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 compartment's empty. Um, you know, things like that. And so, you know, it's it's a weird way of time. So areas that we can expect God's overflow in our lives. And I'm thinking, okay, what is the metaphor here? Is my life like an ice cube tray? You know, it's all compartmentalized in certain compartments I can expect to overflow. In other words, I can't. I mean, I don't know. So that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground to cover. And since we're going to be starting with an extended Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley email segment, well, that requires me to do this. As promised, uh, we have a email storm that uh, came in, uh, flooded my email box not too long ago from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and I've been hanging on to these because I've known for quite some time that I was going to be interviewing Joseph Atwill, and I wanted to hang on to these until after. So, uh, email numero uno from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Henley Stoke on Trent. In the United Kingdom, it's, you know, he, this is a man with like lots of words associated with him. But uh, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, "Dear Chris, by the way, the name of the su- the subject on this is covert Messiah, yet more codswallop." <laughs> yeah, listening to the nonsense from Joseph Atwell at his covert Messiah business, my first thought was, 
I know what Conway Hall is, and Americans won't. Now, this was so helpful yesterday because uh, if I had not been told by Pastor Charmley via email, I wouldn't have known this. So he, pa- Pastor Charmley actually helped me. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, he was helping me with uh, my preparation for my conversation. But he so he says Americans won't know what uh, Conway Hall is. He says Conway Hall is the home of the South Place Ethical Society, which began its life in the 18th century as a Baptist church formed by a group expelled from another church for denying eternal punishment. They proceeded to reject the deity of Christ and and became Unitarians and finally rejected belief in God altogether. In other words, it's the nearest thing you'll get to a church for unbelievers. Now, that's that is relevant at Atwill's appearing there for the simple reason that it means that he's having the event at the London Secularist Cathedral. If there was a sh- if there were a shred of scholarly credibility to what the chap is saying, he would be speaking at the British Library or at the British Museum or one of the other learned societies in London. Instead, the event was held at Conway Hall, and I draw my own conclusions. The whole thing is a uh, is of course yet another example of what I've dubbed. Codswallop. Isn't that a great word? Codswallop. I think I have to say it with a British accent. I would mess it up. No, it's just nothing but a bunch of codswallop. You know, just what a great word. Anyway, so he says he's dubbed this whole thing codswallop. That is the assertion that a genuine historical document contains a hitherto undiscovered code that makes startling revelations. It is, to put it to put a fine point on it, a form of conspiratorial thinking akin to that underlying the popular novel The Da Vinci Code. Whilst such ideas sell books, they are highly subjective and speculative, often akin to the astronomer who believed that he was recording channels on Mars when, in fact, he was faithfully recording the vein structure of his own eyeballs. <laughs> Unaware that he was suffering from cataracts. The, pa- <laughs> the pattern is not in the document, but in the mind of the one who believes that he is seeing it. Now, this is a great point. Because uh, if you remember yesterday, uh, you know, Joseph Atwell was very convinced, very convinced that this this parallel typological sequencing that he was seeing in Josephus was a secret code that was literally saying, dee, 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 dee. We invented Jesus. Love. The Flavian emperors of Rome. It's like, oh man. But you know, Pastor Charmley's right. You know, these these conspiratorial codes are really only in the mind of the one who believes he's seeing seeing it. So it happened. Pastor Charmley continues. He says, "It happens that I have a number of family members with PhDs in history." And I ran the idea past them. Now, this is, you know, remember yesterday in my discussion with Joseph Atwell, I mentioned Professor John D. Charmley and Dr. Gerald T.J. Charmley. And the reason I did that is because Pastor Charmley was so kind enough to actually run by uh, his relatives who have PhDs in history, the ideas of uh, Joseph Atwell. So let me continue reading. I'll back it up just a little. It says, it happens that I have a number of family members with PhDs in history. And so I ran the ideas past them, both Professor John D. Charmley and Dr. Gerald T.J. Charmley have pronounced Atwill's ideas, quote, ridiculous. 
Professor Charmley regards such people as fabulists, and Dr. Charmley regards the whole idea as positively deranged. Uh, thus equipped with <laughs> expert opinion, I merely note that the 19th has has been and gone with not even a mention of the whole thing from Auntie Beeb, otherwise known as the British Broadcasting Corporation, and the world continues to turn. Email number one from Pastor Charmley. But we continue. Pastor Charmley, email number two, ask a silly question is the subject heading. Dear Chris, covert Messiah video, why was the religion headquartered in Rome? Now, now in this is one of the major points in the video that was premiered in, you know, to the British audience there at, uh, you know, in, in London a couple weeks ago. And in the video, they asked the question, well, why was Christianity headquartered in Rome? Hmm. Pastor Charmley's response, it wasn't, you nincompoop. <laughs> silly question, silly answer. Now that's email number two. Email number three, much longer. <laughs> Pastor Charmley's head, uh, subject heading is conspiratorial language games. Pastor Charmley writes, he says, dear Chris, Again and again, you can see, actually, I think that the letters are bolder. I can tell that he was actually pressing harder on the keyboard while he was typing this. He says, again and again, in the covert Messiah promotional material, we hear comments about government control and state conspiracies. <clears throat> this is no accident. It is deliberate of such language to appeal to the zeitgeist, no pun intended. Distrust of governments and police is high on both the left and the right, and the appeal to of conspiracy theories in the West is undeniable. It is, of course, simply a fact that governments have in recent times conspired in a variety of ways to exercise control over what they deemed undesirable groups. There is no denying this. During World War II, for example, the British intelligence agency, MI5, secretly took control of the entire German intelligence network in the UK and used it to systematically feed false information to German military intelligence. In a less obvious, obviously benign example, the FBI used moles within organizations deemed to be un-American to disrupt the groups. Thus, the idea of the Roman emperors creating a fake religion to control the Jewish people is appealing to those with little knowledge of history and minds receptive to conspiratorial thinking, something that describes a large proportion of the Western population. Conspiracy sells. The X-Files sold for that reason. The Da Vinci, Code so, uh, da Vinci Code sold at bookstores, but not so much at the cinema. And an alarming large number of people believe that Barack Obama is a Kenyan-born Muslim plotting to make himself dictator of the United States, though admittedly any number of people believing that uh, is alarming. Even Holocaust denial sells. And in Christian circles, the two Babylons sells, despite being not only errant nonsense, but antiquated errant nonsense at that, which brings us to another point. Conspiracies sell on left and right, though, of course, rarely the same conspiracies. Despite the best efforts of certain left-wingers to depict right-wingers as conspiracy nuts and themselves as rational types, in fact, belief in conspiracy theories is at least as common on the political left as it is on the political right. For every right-wing conspiracy theory about Barack Obama, I can give you a leftist one about George W. Bush and in many cases the same theory 
about Bush. Now, this is a great point that Pastor Charmley brings up. And let me say this, that uh, it helps us in the American audience to listen to Pastor Charmley because Pastor Charmley doesn't have a horse in U.S. political races, okay? He's a Brit, so he's not caught up in the minutiae of the back-and-forth Fox News, CNN, you know, liberal conspiracies and right-wing conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. So the nice thing about this email is it provides us with um, an outside-the-United-States perspective with somebody who ha- will never, unless he comes to the United States and becomes a citizen, uh, who, who will never be uh, voting either for or against uh, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party here in the United States. But Pastor Charmley then continues. He says, of course, conspiracies happen. And to suppose that governments are always above board and honest with their people, well, that's naive. But at the same time, we should always try the claims and not accept them because they happen to agree with our own particular political ideology, religious belief, or worldview. So in particular, we ought to be suspicious of claims of grand conspiracies, for such claims are usually disguised attacks against a disliked party that the claim's originator wishes to destroy. The claim that Barack Obama is seeking to enslave the U.S. populace is far too similar to the claim eight years ago that George Bush was claiming to enslave the U.S. populace. For me, not to think that the motivation is not so much evidence of Obama's evil plan is simple dislike of the man's politics. And the claim that the Flavians created Christianity to control the Jews is far too similar to Jack Chick's claims that the Vatican created Islam to control the Arabs, for me not to think that the motivation is a reality, a mere dislike of Christianity. In all of these cases, the common element is a fear of the party at the center of the conspiracy is going to destroy our America. And since the normal methods have failed, extraordinary methods must therefore be adopted against the foe. The danger of this train of thought should be instantly apparent. The accusation of the vast conspiracy takes the place of actually engaging with the other side. It seeks to imitate the acts of Alexander the Great with a Gordian knot rather than untying it. It tries to cut by painting Christianity or Islam, in the case of Jack Chick, as the deliberate fabrication of a cynical conspiracy, it says, in effect, quote, I do not need to address the claims of the other, for the other is merely deceived by an ancient plot of which they are ignorant, but I know the truth, end quote. Convenient, but a dodge at best. The conspiracy is a pseudo-history that takes the place of the actual history and justifies unthinking hostility in the place of serious intellectual engagement. At worst, it places the other in the position of a delusional mental patient who needs to be restrained for his own good, justifying in the mind of the one holding it the most oppressive measures. Now, this is important. Now, this is one of the reasons why yesterday, uh, when I was interviewing Joseph Atwell, I specifically engaged his ideas and made him engage the the you know the the, uh, the historical claims of Christianity. I had it, it, see that's the idea is I had to get him off of his uh, conspiratorial platform, and the only way I was going to do that was with an honest engagement 
with his theory, with his views. And by doing that, it ended up disarming him of his, you know, and taking away the power of his conspiracy and really making him have to come to grips with he hasn't really actually dealt with any of the real history regarding the fact that Jesus and Christianity existed long before the Flavian emperors. So the idea there here is that, you know, keep this in mind when you're dealing with somebody who's thinking conspiratorially, even if it's you, you need to uh, you need to knock that off and you need to help that person stop thinking conspiratorially because that's lazy. That's absolutely lazy. Instead, you need to in- get them to engage with real evidence, real facts, real, real ideas, and and work against those, or you know, understand them for what they are, so that you know they're not overreacting. Because uh, the conspiratorial mindset, unfortunately, has. You know, taken root in a lot of different quarters within Christianity and outside of Christianity, and it's it's not real scholarship. It doesn't engage with real facts, and ultimately, it then becomes dangerous because it beca- it could metastasize into a full blown ideology where that you know where the ends will justify the means, and there's no way to break through the ideology. Uh, because it isn't based upon reason or facts or evidence. It's it's a circular, tight logic that uh, you can't break into using logic and reason. And then the the most irrational and unreasonable things become possible in the, the those types of ideologies. But let me continue with Pastor Charlie's email. So what, therefore, we need to do is challenge the conspiratorial mindset. And I completely agree with Pastor Charmley here. Not the idea that there are such things as conspiracies. There are such things, and governments do engage in them. But rather, the mindset that regards government conspiracy as the first port of call uh, when there is a school shooting or a terrorist attack as the default explanation, so to speak, for all troubling events. For example, when the Boston Marathon was bombed, there were websites that declared it to be a false flag attack even before a flag was announced. And more than that, we must challenge the conspiracy narrative that looks to a grand conspiracy as the cause of these events. Whether that grand conspiracy is the Roman Catholic Church, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the Knights Templar, um, and the Knights Templar are always involved somewhere in these things. Instead, we must teach history, study history, respect history, and treat the grand conspiracy as pseudo-history. Why? Most notably because the grand conspiracy is, is historically unprovable, and there is no evidence for it. And its advocates rely uh, reply that if it existed, we should expect to find no evidence, at which point my scientific side comes in and points out that a hypothesis that is unfalsifiable is to be regarded as false, or in, in more historical terms, if all evidence against the theory is to be regarded as evidence for a theory, then the theory has become a pre supposition, an axiom, and as such has passed from the realm of history to the realm of metaphysics. The conspiracy has become, to all intents and purposes, an article of faith, and that's not a good idea, for it makes those who claim to be skeptics entirely unskeptical of their own conspiracy theory. Now, this is this is actually such a brilliant email. I, I really think I should publish this um, on my website. I, I might consider doing that. Email number four. From, from Pastor Charmley on this uh, same topic. Uh, the subject reads, Covert uh, Messiah, Overt Mess. Dear Chris, 
Having heard the agenda of the covert Messiah, I can only say that I am profoundly disappointed, as the basic idea, Jesus is a myth, is not new, neither is the conclusion, let's all just embrace some vague natural religion that in fact does not exist and never has existed. And so they say, once you dis- uh, discard the dogma, all religions are remarkably similar. Well, yes, but that is that is to miss the all-important point that the dogma is not some excreants growing on the outside of the pure mystical experience of awe and reverence, but the dogma is the central thing. All that any religion has achieved, it has achieved because of its dogma. The Christian does not does what he does because of his Christian dogma. Remove the dogma and you're left with not a purified Christianity, but no Christianity at all. And indeed, the same goes for any religious system. Even the Gnostics, Gnostics did not actually discard dogma, but rather replace Christian dogma with their own Gnostic dogma. The rejection of the Christian dogma by the various Gnostic schools was not because it was dogma, but because they felt it to be the wrong dogma. Indeed, the Gnostics were very dogmatic. For, in fact, religious belief cannot exist without dogma, and they knew it. What is more, the Gnostic, Gnostics' dogmas would be as much rejected by Atwill at all today as the Christian ones, but the Gnostics are the current ancient heretics du jour and the screen on which fashionable religionists can project their own ideas, even their own dogmas. For the stubborn fact remains that one cannot have religion without dogma, and thus one must either admit the fact or deny it and become inconsistent or adopt Horace Bushnell's approach, which is basically fake it. And I am not in the least bit surprised to find that a modern-day leftist idea of the fundamental religion is a form of nature worship. For environmental concerns are high on the agenda of the modern intellectual left. This makes the invoking of the Gnostics even more ironic, since Gnosticism has always been dualistic, valuing the spiritual and devaluing the physical. But when one is profoundly ignorant of history, one will come up with all sorts of contradictions. Fundamentally, of course, the natural religion of Atwill and company is all rehashed Schleiermacher, but this ought not to surprise us. It's always rehashed Schleiermacher, which is, of course, why it will will go precisely nowhere uh, that the rehashed Schleiermacher has not already gone. Another great email. Last one, uh, the last one here, and it's another long one. Just but stay, stay with me. They're, these are definitely, definitely worth it uh, because Pastor Charmley just has some great insight into this. Further covert Messiah foolishness is the subject heading. Pastor Charmley writes, "Dear Chris, old Atwill's concluding blasphemous quotation: "Quote, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free," was as predictable as it was hackneyed. But it reminds me of the week The Da Vinci Code came out at the cinema. It happens that the film came out on Friday when I was around the corner from Leicester uh, Square at a Bible study on Galatians. And the following Sunday, I was to preach at the New Life Bible Presbyterian Church, Queen's Park, London. And the text I was given to speak upon was the section of John's Gospel containing those very, those very words. After packed cinemas full of people eager to hear about a fictional truth, there I was proclaiming the real truth. And a few years ago, when I started open-air preaching in Stoke, I created a little talk based on the idea... Uh, Four make-believe codes, backwards masking codes in the Beatles music, the Da Vinci Code, the idea that Alice in Wonderland contains a code, and of course, the Bible Code, and then the truth. 
And so I laughed out loud at Atwill's own little code and thought, once again, fiction can be free, can free no one, but the truth shall set you free. And it is fiction, an amusing piece of delusional fiction, self-contradictory, self-condemnatory, a man claiming to be undogmatic, yet being as dogmatic as can be. To quote, quote, the very survival of humanity depends on viewing history from a new perspective, unquote. I rest my case. That is dogma. And it is, truth be told, dogma calling for the reconstruction of history on dogmatic lines in a matter that Christianity, even at the times when it was most tempting to do so, has never authorized. Even though the medieval papacy, in the cases of the forged decretals and the donation of Constantine, attempted the act. But the medieval papacy attempted it covertly, in the darkness, knowing that it was wrong. What Atwill and company seem to be calling for is the open practice of this monstrous criminal act. Quote, The actual history is way too complex for the average person to ever get their head around, says Mr. Atwell. Uh, but worry not, for he will interpret it for us. N no, I, I, I don't think so. If, we're, if we are to have authorized interpreters then let them be persons whose wisdom has been tried, whose knowledge has been tested in the schools, not mavericks who, while rejoicing in their own intellectual freedom to challenge orthodoxies, a uh, freedom I by no means deny them, yet deny the common man that same freedom. Atwell's Enlightenment pre predecessors at least kept up the pretense of leading the common man into new fields of knowledge that he might explore for himself. But Atwell's cautions, uh, cautions that history is too complex for the common man, even as a medieval pope might caution that the Bible was too complex for the common man to, be, to read for himself. And so we find that the very man who criticizes the dogmatism of Christianity more dogmatically than any pope and the man who criticizes the intellectual fetters imposed by Christianity will impose fetters heavier than any pope ever did. For even the highest of medieval popes was vulnerable to a council and a part of the machinery of the church which ultimately answering to God. But Atwell's an Atwell answers to none, not even to God, for his deity is nature, which, however much uh, we may pers personify it, is no person. The, quote, more enlightened, unquote, humanity turns out to mean not the common people, it never does mean the common people, but an intellectual elite. The myths are for the common people, the truth is for the elite alone. And then I think of the cynical Roman intellectual elites and realize that it is, after all, Atwill who is the Caesar. It is he who is the myth-maker. He is seeing, not Jesus, but himself in the, mirror, in the mirror. Have I considered whether or not his arguments are true? Well, of course. And I have concluded they are as false as Dick Van Dyke's cockney accent in Mary Poppins. I would ask religious leaders to consider whether my findings are true, he says, is always the last refuge of the teller of tall tales and myth-makers, the dogmatist masked as the mere follower of reason. The abuse of a thing is no argument against its proper use, nor against its truth and reality. Atwill contends that it is a bad thing that rulers have used Christianity to control us. But what of those many cases where it has prevented rulers from controlling people? And 
is not the one is not one of those cases the Roman Empire and after all is not one of the roles of ideas in the formation of guidance of groups does Atwill not contend that his dogmas if accepted will form a better future then does he not believe that his ideas should control us <laughs> then is not his real contention that it is the wrong dogmas that have been controlling humanity all of these years Far from the dogma being on the surface, the dogma is always at the very core, and that goes for Atwill's revived nature worship as much as any other religion. The reason that a revived nature worship dissents from Christianity and must reject its dogmas is not that it is against dogma, but that its dogma, that its dogma, that nature is itself divine, conflicts violently with the Christian teaching that nature is created. And, of course, it also contradicts the actual Gnostic dogma that the physical is the creation of a lesser god, a fallen demiurge, bungling at best, the wicked at worst. You simply cannot be a Gnostic and a nature worshiper, and for, for the two are diametrically opposed and cannot be reconciled. And I find myself annoyed, not that Atwill's argument is strong, but that it is so feeble. Is this it? I was promised Goliath, and I find not even a pygmy, but the mere paper, not even cardboard cut out of a pygmy. He talks of evidence and gives us a code, a speculative code with no more objective proof than the Da Vinci Code. He denounces Christians for giving no evidence but religious dogma and gives us a code of his own devising. The anger turns to mirth as I laugh, for behold, the one upon whom his criticisms come to rest is actually himself. And finally, G.K. Chesterton was writing against this sort of revived nature worship and pretty much everything else in, this, in the segment that you played in 1908 in orthodoxy. Someone send Atwill a copy. If there is one thing we can be glad about with these allegedly postmodern attacks on Christianity, it is that they are, they are all really merely repeated performances of plays long forgotten, and we can very easily return to the reviews of the plays from their last performance and dust them off before repeating them. Great, great insights from Pastor Charmley. And uh, Pastor Charmley, again, thank you for taking the time uh, for writing these well-thought-out responses uh, you know, that you give us uh, regularly here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there is uh, at Pirate Krishner. Follow me on Facebook. Just uh, hit the subscribe button. Quick break. When we come back, we have a David Crank update as well as a strange forest fire update. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. 
Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
No, 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 no. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, the person who says that dogma should be eliminated is making a dogmatic statement. Think about it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. So it seems that the the Holy Spirit of the uh, New Apostolic Reformation is not happy with uh, John MacArthur and the gang and what happened over there at Strange Fire. And apparently uh, that Holy Spirit is threatening to burn down everything with a new Strange Fire forest fire <laughs> kind of thingy. Um, here is uh, one of the prophets uh, from... Uh, <clears throat> and I... Boy, that... <laughs> prophets. Yeah, I have to put that in air quotes. Uh, from uh, Glory of Zion in uh, uh, in Texas, uh, home of the new apostolic apostle... Uh, Chuck Pierce, and I th- who is the guy who's going to be doing this uh, prophecy? I forget his name. But anyway, listen in. This is uh, the Holy, Holy Spirit's throwdown uh, response to the Strange Fire Conference. Listen in. Now, let me tell you something. There's something about the fire of God that's coming under attack right now. There are people out there who are wanting to say that the fire of God is something that you control. But I'm telling you, when the fire of God it is the strangest of all fires because it burns at the oddest times in the oddest ways and it burns in a way that cannot be contained and cannot be controlled by the hands of men now listen that's what God wants to do in each one of us right now he wants to burn in us but we say Lord we don't know how that's going to happen he says I don't care if you don't know because he says now is the time for my fire to burn yeah that that doesn't sound anything like the the holy spirit revealed in the text of scripture yeah you sure you got the right number you know i you, you remember back in the day you know that you know before we had cell phones and speed dials and stuff like that i mean you'd have to actually physically you know beep in you know you'd have to punch in a phone number you know and from time to time you'd like you you know you'd end up dialing the wrong number i think this guy he got a hold of that other holy spirit that isn't the holy spirit don't be afraid of the strange character of his fire don't let anyone lie to you and say it's strange fire because i'm telling you says the lord my fire is the strangest and the most powerful yeah, so uh, God the Holy Spirit is saying that his fire is the strangest and most powerful of all. 
Again, you sure you're actually talking to God, the Holy Spirit here, you know, third person of the Holy Trinity. And something is happening in this atmosphere. It is changing. There's a release of the angelic and they did not come today to sing with us. Um, usually fire and the burn are associated with hell. Um, again, you guys sure you actually dialed the right number before you started this church service? I heard the Lord say firestorm. Now a firestorm is a blaze that is so big it creates its own wind patterns. And the Lord says, the fire that I am sending, the fire from my altar that is burning in my people is of such a thing that it is creating its own Oh, boy. John MacArthur better batten down the hatches. There's a firestorm with its own weather system coming his way. The hand of man that can change it or alter it or stop it. For in this fire, there's a great change. And the change that has made it, it is the change of the cloth that is on top of the table. Watch as I remove the cloth from the table. And I'm sorry. Um, <coughs> hang on. What is this guy talking about? Um, okay. There's an actual transcription of this particular prophecy. Hang on a second here. For is this fire, there is a great change, and that change is making it and is the changing of the cloth that is on the top of the table. Apparently, God the Holy Spirit has some really bad grammar. Uh, watch as I remove the cloth from the table, and <laughs> I am serving a new table when you flourish in it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, apparently their Holy Spirit needs to be locked up. He's got some kind of a mental disorder. He's not capable of lucid communication. So, okay, so God the Holy Spirit, in response to MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference, has promised to do that magic trick where he can pull the tablecloth out from all of the un- uh, under the, the play settings and then just, you know, and replace it magically. Oh, that was really nice of the Holy Spirit to, to pr- prophesy that in response to the Strange Fire Conference. <laughs> What is this? A new table with new florets in it. Do not focus on the things around you. Focus on the table and watch my girl remove the mantle of the table and put a brand new on top of it and see how it distributes the florets of my glory over the table. Now come to the table of fire. All right, so we got a firestorm that's going to create its own weather pattern, and there's going to be a now there's the table of fire where God's going to perform the tablecloth magic trick. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so there you go. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, has visited the folks over there at Glory of Zion and has promised a firestorm, a tablecloth magic trick, and has invited you to come to the fire table. Um, and you know, this is God, the Holy Spirit's apparent response to the Strange Fire Conference. And I'm sure the people over there, like Chuck Pierce, are basically thinking that, well, there you have it. You, John MacArthur, have been pwned. <laughs> and... Uh, to use the phrase used by Phil Johnson, I think the better way to describe this is as, well, self-refuting. That wasn't God the Holy Spirit speaking through these people at all. Um, that was just nonsense, gibberish, and completely non-lucid communication, uh, which, again, is self-refuting. Yeah, so there there's, there you go. You, got, you, go. you guys over there, grace to you in the Strange Fire Conference. You've been pwned, man. There's gonna, now there's going to be a whole weather pattern firestorm thingy with a tablecloth magic trick. So come to the fire table. You've been warned. <clears throat> Moving along. That's right. It's time for a David Crank update. Here's our David Crank update music. Gary Wright's Dreamweaver. Anyway, let me kill the music here. Um, so what you're about to listen to, I don't even know how to set this up, but it's from a sermon series that David Crank delivered not too long ago entitled On Mission, Overcoming Obstacles. And usually when you talk about the church being on mission, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, going and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, making disciples, baptizing, teaching, you know, and things like that. Um, but this is, that's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, it's like I said, I don't even know how to set this up. So let's just dive into it and see if you can make heads or tails of it and what he does with Scripture in this sermon. Here, listen in. Acts, the 16th chapter. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they find themselves in jail. And, and first of all, Paul, St. Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He has this guy by the name of Silas with him. He says, Silas, join me in the gospel ministry. We're going to have fun, adventure, travel. It's going to be great. We're going to change the world. Okay. See, already it's like bad. So, um, you know, talking about being on mission, right? On mission would be, you know, preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing, teaching, you know, that stuff. And so here we've got an example of being on mission. And what does David Crank say the mission is? 
Well, he's adding to the book of Acts, okay? And so uh, apparently Paul you know, had talked to Silas and said, hey, Silas, said, listen, let's go become world travelers and we're going to change the world. And that's not the mission of the church. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever see God saying, therefore, go and change the world. Nope. That's that's become the new Great Commission, which is nowhere found in Scripture. Let me back this up because this is very interesting what he's doing. He's basically engaging in what is called eisegesis. That means reading things into the text that are not there and changing what it says. And he's doing this because he's not actually reading the text. Listen again. Here we go. There. Uh, Acts, the 16th chapter. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they find themselves in jail. And and first of all, Paul, St. Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He has this guy by the name of Silas with him. He says, Silas, join me in the gospel ministry. We're going to have fun, adventure, travel. It's going to be great. We're going to change the world. Then they're they're at this particular town, and they, they come across an obstacle. There's this woman there, and she's a psychic. And Paul sees that she's a psychic and they, they expose it and cast the devil out of her. And then they got so angry with Paul that they beat them with rods. That's a problem. Then they threw them in the center, the deepest part of the jail. And then it wasn't enough just to put them in jail. They actually locked up their hands and their feet. You talk about an obstacle. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely an obstacle. How do you overcome obstacles in David Crank's theology? Answer, uh, by speaking positive words. David Crank is a guy who buys into the word of faith heresy, which is a metaphysical mind science heresy. It's not Christianity. It's something disguising as Christianity. So bad things are happening to you. You create a positive future by speaking positive words. Let's see what he does with the so-called obstacle to the mission of going and changing the world that apparently Paul and Silas were on. To overcome. This looks impossible. They're bloody. They're, they're bleeding. And yeah, they have them behind bars and then they have them locked up. And the Bible says in the midnight hour, it says, Paul and Silas begin to sing praises unto God. Hmm. Must have been challenging. I, I think, first of all, Silas probably said, hey, Paul, what's this business about we're going to change the world? We're going to stay at five-star hotels. Notice he's adding to the scripture, and the addition is going to give us the false theology, not the Bible, but what he's adding to it. Listen in. I beat with rods. We're in jail. I didn't sign up for this. And I'm sure Paul said, hey, wait a minute. Whatever you do, just shut up right now because they've tied up your hands and they've tied up your feet, but they haven't tied up your mouth. If they bring duct tape tape in here, we're in trouble. But right now... See, they haven't tied up your mouth. You can positively confess and create a positive outcome, right? Free. We're snared by the words of our mouth. We eat good by the fruit of our lips. We have not because we ask not. Paul says, hey, Silas, why don't you just shut up for a minute? Sometimes you need somebody in your life like a Dr. Phil to say, here's the problem. You got to quit. You got to stop it. I think it's great. Dr. Phil, Oprah, whoever, you know, these people are around and they help people. But at the end of the day, what they're saying is a truth, but they don't offer the truth. A truth is, yeah, deal with the situation. 
The truth is, hey, you don't have to deal with it alone. God is on your side. You don't have to wrestle with flesh and blood. The battle is not yours. It is the Lord. The Lord fights your battles. Wow. I'll say it backwards. Wow. I'll say it upside down. Mom. So in the midnight hour, Paul and Silas begin to sing praises to the Lord. They're singing and they're rejoicing in an obstacle. This isn't an opportunity, an obstacle. This is an opportunity for us to, to get a different perspective on this and say, hey, God, I know it's not by my, it's not by power, but it's by your spirit. I can do all things through Christ, including, well, give me a minute. Yeah, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, except for get his microphone to work properly. Yeah, Yeah, by the way, the context of the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that's not about, um, you know, you know, doing well in sports and things like that. Look at the context on that from Philippians. It's dealing with suffering as a result of preaching Christ. That hurt, by the way, my left ear. Off, but in the middle of the night, they just start singing praises to God, and it says, In the middle of the night, Acts 16, that God couldn't take it any longer, and the whole prison begins to shake. And God couldn't take it any longer. Which translation are you reading from? On a roll, and that's where Elvis wrote that song. And it's just that the prison doors flew open. And not only did Paul and Silas walk out free and healed and delivered and happy, it said that everyone else that was in prison realized, huh, my door's open. I, I can go. I can leave. Here's the thing, Dad. Here's the thing, Mom. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I can't whip this alcohol thing. Yeah, that's not how that story happened. If you have your Bible, please open to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And let's take a look at this story of what takes place in the jail there. Did When the doors flew open, did everybody say, I'm free, I'm free, was the reason why Paul and Silas were singing praises to God so they can create a positive confession that would then, you know, create a better future for themselves because they were on mission to change the world? No. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Notice this is we language. This means that Luke was there. He's an eyewitness of this account. Luke is the author of Acts. And uh, so a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, actually it's the spirit of uh, Puthona, that would be, you know, Python. That means that she's associated with the Oracle of Delphi, famous ancient oracle. And uh, this brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Sounds great, right? Except for it's a demon doing it. And believe me, no demons really actually want to um, <clears throat> proclaim Christ. So they, they describe Jesus as the Most High God. In other words, yeah, he, Jesus, yeah, he's one of the pantheon. You worship him and, and all those other stuff, all those other deities too. 
So this she kept on doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, now this is an interesting little historical note here, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, it it wasn't one magistrate, it was two, which puts this uh, in history during the reign of Nero. Funny, interesting stuff. Read the book uh, by F.F. Bruce. The the, uh, uh, New Testament documents, are they reliable? You know, historical reliability of the New Testament documents is key stuff. But anyway, we continue. So when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering that the jailer keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now this is where um, David Crank kind of deviates from the story, if you would. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. They hadn't. No, the prisoners hadn't escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's the question. How does he know that he needs to be saved? He's listening to their singing. Their hymns are proclaiming the gospel and what Christ has done and salvation. So this is where he's getting his theology from and his uh, his need, knowledge of his need of salvation. So they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them, and that same hour of the night washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and and he, rejoicing along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Now the story continues. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, sent to the police saying, let us let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have said to let you go. Therefore, come now and uh, go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? Nope. Let them come themselves and take us out. So the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That's the biblical text. Now, does David Crank's retelling of this sound anything close to what the biblical text says? Not even close at all. Oh, Paul and Silas are on this great, grand, uh, whirlwind, great tropical tour of the world, you know, uh, exotic ports of call on their mission to go change the world. And they were thrown in prison, and it became an obstacle. But don't worry, they positively confessed, and God set them free, and... And then, well, let me back this up, and you can listen to the story in context. Listen to what he does with the end of the story. 
And it says that the prison doors flew open. And not only did Paul and Silas walk out free and healed and delivered and happy, it said that everyone else that was in prison realized, huh, my door's open. Yeah, uh, Paul and Silas were not healed. It doesn't say they were healed. I, I can go. I can leave. Here's the thing, Dad. Here's the thing, Mom. If you're here today and you're like, man, I can't whip this alcohol thing. She doesn't believe me anymore. I'm scared to death that my kids are going to be just like me. It's an obstacle that I can't overcome. When you come to the house of God and you begin to sing praises unto God, God is not a respecter of persons. What he did for Paul and Silas, he will do for you. And not only will he let you out of prison, everyone else who was in prison is going to walk out and realize their freedom because of what you have done through persistence of an obstacle turning around to your opportunity. Um, boy, yeah. Um, boy, that sounds biblical, doesn't it? Though, except for like none of the other prisoners were actually let loose. And uh, had they gotten, gone free, then we wouldn't have the story of the jailer then becoming a Christian because he was about ready to commit Harry Carey and commit suicide and kill himself because had those prisoners gotten out – um, then they would have killed him anyway. So he was just going to just hasten the process and just go ahead and take his own life. Um, weird, huh? Yeah, don't let don't let a good biblical story get in the way of your twisted theology for sure. I mean, if you're if you if you're going to have your own theology and the Bible contradicts it, be sure to just omit all of the relevant data from the Bible that contradicts with the story that you want to tell with the theology that you already have. And don't by any means let your theology be modified by, you know, like the written word of God. <clears throat> yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and yet it's brazen, it's blasphemous, and this is what we see on a day-to-day -day basis by so many popular pastors, preachers, and teachers, including men like David Crank. But it's not biblical. <laughs> All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. When we come back, a Brian Houston sermon review. Which parts of your life can you expect God's overflow in? It's like the ice cube tray theory of your life. I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Our number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Heading back down to Sydney, Australia today. You know, I figure if we're going to be on, you know, an exotic tour to go change the world, you know, for me, what's a more exotic place than to visit Sydney, Australia? I can only hope that I get to cross that off my bucket list before I crump. But let's do this right. Here we go. Good, the bad, and uh, wild, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Hillsong, Sydney, Australia. Brian Houston presiding. The name of the sermon is Areas We Can Expect God's Overflow in Our Lives. I wonder if it's going to be a checklist sermon. You can expect overflow in finances. You can expect overflow in... Well, hot romance in the bedroom. You can expect overflow. I, yeah, I don't really even know how this sermon's going to go, so I shouldn't get too far on that limb, otherwise it's going to break off. <clears throat> so as we listen to this, we'll be examining what's the problem, what's the solution, how often is he really talking about Christ and him crucified for our sins, and is his handling of Scripture even accurate at all? Since we're dealing with somebody who's one of the main purveyors of the word of faith heresy down there in Sydney, Australia, I do not have a lot of hope for this sermon. So, let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, 
Here is Brian Houston and his sermon entitled, Areas We Can Expect God's Overflow in Our Lives. Here we go. Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Brian Houston, Senior Pastor of Hillsong Church. For more information about Pastor Brian's teaching and ministry, please visit www.brianandbobby.com. I believe it's the will of God for us to have a community that's built around God's Word that brings constant testimony to the power and the grace of God, transforming and changing lives. Now, i got to stop right to see we, we didn't even get very far into this. Now, this is the common evangelical take. Um, that the testimony of life change is the thing that's going to convince people they need to hop on board the Jesus bandwagon. But the thing is, is that your story of life transformation is not the gospel. And the other really big problem here is, is that there are many different ways that people can experience life change. Now, I forget the name of the documentary that... Um, that uh, Peter Rollins mentioned, but it's a fascinating documentary. I'll have to look it up on Netflix uh, while I'm uh, while I'm listening to the sermon. But uh, it, it's a it's a documentary of a guy who fakes being a, 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 a Indian guru, you know, from India, and uh, you know, spiritual guru type guy. Guy completely fakes it, and there's a documentary about this guy faking being a guru and. People experiencing life change as a result of the help that they receive were receiving from this guy who was faking being a guru. It's <laughs> so listen, you know, you you think your story of life change is go, is the thing that's going to clinch it, the thing that's going to convince people they got to jump on the Jesus bandwagon. There's people who've experienced life change in Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism. Uh, it you know uh, Hindu religion uh, you know name the religion. There's people who's who've experienced all kinds of life change. There's been people who've experienced life change <clears throat> playing those videos from that that guy you know uh, oh I forget his name the 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 exercise guy who's kind of light in the loafers you know come on girls yeah move your tushies you know <laughs> Richard Simmons that's the guy anyway you know there's people who experience life change as a result of watching Richard Simmons. DVDs and uh, VHSs. I don't even know if they ever made it to DVD. It might only be a VHS phenomenon. But you understand what I'm saying. So, but this is this is completely backwards. The gospel is not the story of your life change. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again bodily from the grave on the third day after he was crucified for our justification. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do with your life change. It has to do with everything that Jesus has done for you. So this is definitely putting the cart before the horse. Now, I know some of you are, I can hear you already going, well, are you saying that, that, that Jesus doesn't change our lives? No, that's not what I said. And if you, th you think that's what I'm saying, you're not listening to me. Okay, now it's true that Christians' lives do change through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, through his word, okay? So yes, Christians, they begin doing good works. They have new appetites. They, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen to Christians. And yes, there's life change. And that's not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. And if you're going to tell somebody about Christianity, tell them about what Jesus has done, not subjectively, therapeutically, what life changes occurred in your life, because that's not the gospel and it doesn't have the power to do anything. We continue. 
power of God's word to wash over you and to actually change your life, change the way you think, change your spirit, change the quality of your life, change the circumstances. God's word is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It can discern between the heart and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, it can separate the part of you that's not of God from the part of you that is of God and can build God's purpose and God's plan into your life. I love the Word of God. I've been speaking about overflow and lack. David said two contrasting things in Psalm 23. In verse 1, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not lack. In verse 5, he goes on and says, My cup overflows. My cup runs over. So David talks about two contrasting concepts, want or lack and overflow. He says, I shall not want, my cup overflows. I shall not want, I shall overflow. Which do you believe is the will of God for your life? Lack? A lack of creativity, a lack of ideas? A lack of judgment, a lack of wisdom. Uh, boy. Um, boy. <laughs> so this is a tortured uh, twisting of the uh, 23rd Psalm. And now we've got the question, oh, well, what do you think is going to be in your life? Lack? Is that what you want? Is that what God's all about is lack? Or are you going to have overflow? Oh, oh, I know. I, sign me up for that overflow stuff, would you? Lack of friendship, lack of relationship, lack of resources. Would you see Lack? As the will of God for your life or overflow? Oh, yeah. Overflow for sure. Yeah. Where's my mansion, by the way? I'm, I'm still waiting on that. I believe that our God is a God of the overflow. I believe that God's word points to overflow. I believe God wants you to be overflowing with creativity, overflowing with opportunity, overflowing with ideas. Yeah. Um, where in the Bible does it say that my life should be overflowing with opportunity, with ideas and creativity and stuff like that? Um, you say that's what God wants for me, but how do you know that that's what God wants for me? We serve the God of the overflow. I shall not want, I shall overflow. I like David's commitment. There was absolutely no doubt about his... Uh, David was committed to overflow? Expectation. I shall not want. I'm not going to lack. I am going to overflow. Yeah, that's actually not what he was saying in the 23rd Psalm at all. Uh, you're, you've really twisted that passage there, um, haven't you? Let's run over. Let's live our lives with that sort of spirit. I shall not lack. I shall overflow. And I just want to take time this morning from Psalm 26 to look at five different areas where we should okay, believe. Psalm 26, five areas that we should expect overflow in our lives. We should expect for overflow and not for lack. Five ways in which we should expect overflow and not lack. And the first of those is in the way you think. Do you think in a way that brings lack or think in a way that brings overflow to your circumstance? To lack or to want literally means, listen to it, to deplete. To diminish, to make small. Overflow means to water, to replete, to replenish. We can think in a way that either is bringing a diminishing, a depleting, making small 
the purposes of God and the great potential we have in him, or we can think in ways that bring an overflow, an Mm. overflow of creative ideas. Mm. So we can think in ways that will create an overflow. So your thinking creates overflow. Now, I can think of a of an area where I don't want any overflow. For instance, like you know, my toilet. I definitely don't want any overflow there. So I better not be thinking negatively in ways that would cause my toilet to overflow because apparently my thinking creates overflow. Where does the Bible say that my thinking creates overflow? This is some weird mystical, magical worldview that is not taught in the Bible. This is, again, akin to the mind science cults. Oh, I tell you. It's not the will of God for you if you have an idea for it to be lonely. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy about that. I mean, could you imagine having an idea and then not having, you know, you know, another idea? Because they're like babies, you know. So if here I've given birth to this idea then and, and I raise it as an only child, it would be very lonely. So I have to have other ideas so that my, those ideas don't – they're not lonely. In fact, I should have a whole family of ideas. I ought to be very fertile in this area so that I don't have a bunch of lonely ideas. But then I, you wonder if you start getting sibling rivalry occurring you know, between different ideas you know, as, they, as they grow up and mature. He wants to fill you with so many ideas that you can't fit them on the pad. Yeah. You got that pad beside your bed in the night and you can't fit the ideas on there. The memory on your computer is full. It can't take any more ideas. You get an overflow of ideas. An overflow. Uh, yeah, boy, you're saying this with a lot of passion, but where is this taught in the Bible again? Creativity. An overflow. An overflow of positive reinforcement. An overflow of expectation. These are things that relate to thinking. Do you think in a way that brings an overflow of expectation? You have so much... There again, why would my thinking create an overflow? Again, why would my thinking create anything? This doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. An overflow of hope? Or is there a clear lack of creativity? Lack of peace. Lack of ideas. In verse 2, we're looking at Psalm 26, verse 1. It says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. David seemed to know what he would and what he wouldn't do. I shall not want, I shall not slip. Oh, yeah. He was a, yeah, that, that King David, he was all about positive confession, I'm sure. Went for a run yesterday morning. It was torturous. I went with a young guy called Rhett Morris, who's half my age, getting toward the end, and I brought great words of positive overflow. I said, I'm dying. <laughs> But Rhett, being the man he is, looks at me and says, you shall not lack. You shall not slip. You shall overcome. You shall overflow with fitness. We will get that overflow off your stomach. Yeah, power of positive thinking and words here, huh? Yeah, who's, who's God in this scenario? You are. You're the one doing the creating. Your words, your thoughts, that creates. You're God in this theology, not God. Shall. And then David's asking the Lord to test him. He says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind. Test my thinking and my heart. So much comes out of our thinking, out of our thought processes, and out of the condition of our heart. David's saying, try my mind. If the Lord was to test your heart, if he was to test your mind, what kind of thinking would he find? 
Now, notice the question is, if God tests your heart, what is he going to find in there? Now, and you know, because Jesus says, out of the heart comes all kinds of sin. You know, adultery, greed, malice. You know, when Jesus talks about the heart, it's horrible things that come out of there. And Jesus wasn't talking about negative thinking; he was talking about sin. Oh, but see, Brian Houston here is he's looking at this this passage in Psalm twenty six, and oh, and, and David's saying, "Oh Lord, test my heart to see if I'm a positive thinker." This isn't what this text is about. Thinking that leads to overflow or thinking that is diminishing you, thinking that is limiting you, small thinking. What a tragedy that so... It's not sin that's limiting you, it's small thinking. Mm -hmm. Where does the Bible say that small thinking limits me? This church has been captivated by small thinking, small expectation, small belief, small thinking... It's the will of God for the people of God to be the biggest thinkers, to have the greatest overflow of creativity and thought, to have such a... Yeah, I, I got to pause here and take a look at that Psalm 26. <clears throat> Let me read this in context. Psalm 26, verse 1. Let's, let's, let's read it without any commentary. See if we can figure out what this passage is about. Is it about positive thinking and positive words and, and not being negative and, and, and through your positive words creating overflow for your life that will overcome lack? Is that what Psalm 26 is about? Well, let's take a look. <clears throat> Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Oh, so David here is talking about trusting in the Lord. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Huh. So David isn't engaging in positive thinking. He's trusting in the Lord and in the Lord's steadfast love and trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. Not in his positive thinking, but in God's faithfulness. Verse 4, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Huh. Doesn't sound like David was uh, enthralled with his positive thinking. Sounds like he was enthralled with his amazing, steadfast, redeeming, loving Lord and trusting in him. Brian Houston has missed the whole point of this psalm. Of course he would, because he thinks this is about David saying, test my heart, I have positive thinking. Look, I, I, I have positive thinking that creates overflow in my life. It's Psalm 26 doesn't say that at all. Expectation, thinking with, with, with a capacity to believe for transformation and change. Let's not be ruled by lack when it comes to the way we think. Some people, their thinking has a complete lack of peace. The Lord says, I know the thoughts I think towards you in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. 
And what are they? Their thoughts of peace. How does God think? He- yeah, notice he took Jeremiah twenty nine eleven out of context. Go, if you haven't doubt already downloaded the PDF that I put in the podcast stream last week regarding Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, you need to download it and read it because you'll understand then exactly just how badly he twisted Jeremiah twenty twenty nine eleven, which a lot of people do nowadays. Thoughts of peace towards you, not of evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. I will keep you in perfect peace, Isaiah 26, verse 3, whose minds are stayed on me. What happens when people get their thinking stayed on him? The promise is peace. But we can live our lives with such anxiety, ruling our thinking, so much worry. I had a series years ago, what a worry, worry is. Do you know, there are people who would get worried if they had nothing to worry about. Worry has become such a big part of their life that they would feel there was something wrong that would be a void if they had nothing to worry about. But if you lack peace, when it comes to your thinking, if you're filled with anguish, if you're awake at three o'clock in the morning on a cold winter's day and the sweat on your brow as you lie in bed with your eyes wide awake... Thinking about what if. All it does is diminish what God intends for you. Really, um, uh, Psalm 26 doesn't teach this. Where are you getting this theology? Because it's not in this passage you're, you're supposedly preaching from. Let's be honest now. I think all of us at some point have probably fallen into worry and fallen into anxiety, fallen into anguish. Robert Ferguson was speaking just a couple of weeks ago here on a Sunday morning and he began to bring great condemnation to those who couldn't sleep. (laughs) Assuming that it was always because of worry. And I got worried about that. (laughs) I mean, I've had nights over the years when I've lay there early in the morning, wide awake, trying to find ways to fall asleep, going downstairs, watching telly for a while, even tried reading the Bible, tried all sorts of things. My prayer has reflected anything but a spirit of overflow. Help! <laughs> but it certainly doesn't build anything of God into us if we're living our life with a lack of peace. I will keep you in perfect peace whose mind, whose thinking is stayed on him. I know the thoughts I think towards you. They're thoughts of peace. People, they live in lack when it comes to the way they think because their thinking completely lacks discipline. There's no discipline. Their thoughts are all over the place. Again, notice his theology is is that your thinking, your words, your thoughts create something for your future. The problem isn't sin. The problem is bad thinking. This is Christian science. Overflow that God intends. Overflow. To come out of your thought life that God intends. If you have a lack of discipline, you don't know how to take discipline, control over the thoughts that want to roam free that can cause havoc. Hey, 
The scripture says, take every thought captive that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? It's the certainty. It's the knowledge of what God's word is for your life, what God's promises, what God speaks into you. And any thought that exalts itself above the knowledge of God, we're told to take it captive. Arrest it. Arrest it. Put it in handcuffs. Lock it up. Put it in behind bars. Throw away the key. Arrest it. That thought's a menace to society. And it's a menace to you. Just arrest those thoughts. That stinking thinking that's holding you back, right? It's not sin. No, it's just negative ideas. We don't challenge the thinking that can rob and plunder us. Many people have a lack of elevation when it comes to the way they think. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, the Bible actually says this, that your thoughts are not his thoughts. It says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his way is higher than our way. So God is the ultimate example of a positive thinker who creates a reality. (gasps) We've got to learn to be just like that. As God's way, it is higher than our way. And if I want to know God's way in my life, I believe I need to be committed to learning God's thoughts. And that means I have to lift the way I think. There are times when we have to get our thinking out of the gutter. It's so depressed. It's so defeated. Notice learning how to think God's thoughts isn't grounded in you learning how to think God's thoughts by reading the mind of God that's revealed in the written word of God. Notice he just, yeah, you need to think positively. This is completely missing the point of what it means for God's thoughts to be higher than our thoughts. God's thoughts are not higher than our thoughts because God is more positive than we are. That's ridiculous. Elevate your thinking. Isn't it sad that people have such a defeatist attitude about God and serving God? It was all back in the Bible times. Or it's all in glory. It's all in heaven. You don't actually believe that God wants to bless you materially as well as spiritually. You don't actually believe that that God will heal people today. You don't actually believe that you can lay hands on a cancer-ridden patient and actually believe for God to touch them. Why would you give them that kind of false hope? You don't believe that God cares about the real physical world, that he actually cares about the circumstance of your life. I do. I absolutely do. Listen, friends, elevate your thinking above the cynicism of the world we live in. Get it up out of the gutter. Get your thinking into the Word of God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and His way is higher than our way. In my way, there's a lot of things I can't do. But in God's way, there's a whole lot of things that I'm able to do. Amen. Like heal the sick and set the prisoner free and see breakthrough and circumstance. and see. Yeah, I'd like to see you do it. Can you prove that you do it? You're claiming, oh, you heal the sick. It's an everyday thing for you. Um, I'd like to see the doctor reports. Where's all the healings? Um, where's the evidence? An impossible situation around and bring blessing to what was parched and dry. I believe it. Amen. People's thinking can lack renewal. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Or well, number two. We need to have a spirit of overflow and not a spirit of lack when it comes to the company we keep. In verse 4, Psalm 26, David says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, 
Nor will I go in with the hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. He is very clear about who he will and who he won't sit with. That's right. And David would have nothing to do with you, Brian Houston, because you are an evil twister of God's word. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Talks about those we walk with, those we stand with, and those we sit with. And I think there's differences. In life, just walking out life, I, I, I meet all sorts of people in my walk through life. The guy who serves me coffee, the person who puts petrol in my car, the neighbor over the fence. We meet all sorts of people as you walk through life. Sometimes you even stand beside people who have a different spirit, a different thinking, a different belief system, a different ideology. I watched for years rugby league where my sons played standing beside all sorts of characters. I remember one time standing with the fathers on the side of the football field shouting. Why is it that all of his stories that he tells after reading a verse have nothing to do with what that verse actually says? One of the major techniques of Bible twisters, by the way. Come on! And one of them says to me, Brian, we're having a boobs, booze, and barbecue night. And we want you to come. And I'm like, well, I can't go to that. I can't go to that. He said, come on, nobody will know. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. Booze, boobs, and barbecue. In life, we find ourselves walking by all sorts of people and find ourselves standing with various people. And incidentally, there are some of those fathers and some of their sons who are still in this church till today. They weren't them, by the way. And sometimes it means you maybe have a meal with someone who doesn't know Christ, but sitting's a different level. Who we sit with in life is a different level. And the Bible is so strong. And many people wonder why there's lack and not overflow. Out of relationship can come an overflow of support, an overflow of encouragement, an overflow of friendship, an overflow of challenge and stretch that leads you. See, if you're not having overflow in your life, it may be that you have the wrong friendships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Can be an overflow of life and fun and fellowship. But many people, what they have out of some of those relationships is just a knot in the stomach. Relationships that diminish you, that deplete you, rather than relationships that replenish you and replete you. And David is very firm about who he would and who he wouldn't sit with. Sadly, I think many people completely underestimate the impact of those we sit with in life. And your destiny is too important. The overflow of promise that God has for you. Your destiny is to... Now, he's not talking about, like, eternal destiny. He's talking about earthly wealth, health, fortune. That's what he's talking about. Your, your earthly destiny is too important. He's not talking about eternal destiny. Too important for you to not make some serious choices about who you will and who you won't sit with. Yes, we walk with some. We even stand with some. But we make decisions about who we sit with. Psalm 101 verse 3, David says, I hate... That's a strong word. I hate the works of those who fall away. He didn't hate the people. He said, I hate the works of those who fall away. I hate the bitterness. I hate the blaming and the excusing. I hate the, the outworking I see in people's lives and in their families. 
of those who fall away. Then he says, it will not cling to me. David's firm. He says, I shall not want. I shall not slip. It will not cling to me. There are certain substances in life that tend to cling to you. I was walking outside a few weeks ago. I went up to my house and was taking off my shoe. And all of a sudden I felt something cold caked on my hand. And I picked my hand up and I'm not lying. It was just absolutely caked with dog's excrement. It was running through, oozing through my fingers. Literally dripping down the other side. And I looked at my shoe, and my shoe had a pad of dog's poo all around it, all up the side, all through the bottom. And I looked across Bobby's floor. She was out. And everywhere I had set my foot, some neighborhood dog had left its mark. Even on the new New Zealand sheepskin rug that someone recently gave me when I was in New Zealand was covered in dog's excrement. And I instantly looked at my hand and began to dry heave. I'm hopeless. And I spent the next 40 minutes like, what am I going to do? I don't want this in my wash hand basin. What am I going to do? I could have really done without that sermon illustration. Better. Oh, it was just, that was horrific. It was horrific. It just clung to the rug and clung to the floor and clung to my hand and clung to my shoe. It was terrible. And I'm trying to clean. I know this is what you came to church for this morning. So. Just trying to liven the service up a little this morning. Certain things stick. And there are attitudes and mentalities that you sit with them. And believe me, some of those attitudes and some of those mentalities, they stick. And we somehow think that what's in us will have a positive impact in what's in them. But 1 Corinthians 15, 33, I've spoken of numbers of times that says, bad company corrupts good habits. And it's that old analogy, if you put one bad apple in a bowl full of good apples, do the good apples make the bad apple good? Or does the bad apple make the good apples bad? If I walk into one of those smokers-only rooms at the airport, does everyone else walk out with their clothes smelling clean and fresh from smoke? Or do I walk out with my clothes smelling of smoke? If you drive interstate to Brisbane and you go around 800 bends and you do each of those bends good and you miss 800 trees, but on the 801st you do one bend bad, do all the trees that you missed impact the one that you hit? Or does the one that you hit just count the good of all the ones that you missed? Listen. We have this mentality that somehow the good in us will have a positive impact on the the negativity and the, the bad, the cynicism in somebody else. But the Bible says that the bad company corrupts the good. Notice what's bad about somebody else, the bad company, cynicism, negative thinking, not sin, but just a careful reading. Psalm 26, 
makes it clear that the categories he's operating in are not the same categories that David is operating in. David isn't talking about cynical people with negative stinking thinking. He's talking about real, bona fide, for real sinners, impenitent sinners, who revel in their sin rather than repent of their sin and are forgiven. That's not the category Brian Houston's dealing with because he doesn't know how to deal with that category. It's not in his theology because his theology isn't Christian theology. And I think that it's our position in life to make sure that we're walking near people who need Jesus and that we're even standing with people who need hope and that we stand with them in faith and we stand with them in life. But sitting with hope for, you know, a good destiny here on earth. Different. This is who you receive from. This is who is speaking to you. And people will not make the choices that the Bible is so clear over and over and over you ought to make. If you want a spirit of overflow in your life, then you have to make the right choices when it comes to relationships. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, the scripture says, withdraw from every brother. It's not even speaking about people in the world. Withdraw from every brother who is out of step who walks disorderly and is out of step with what God is doing in your life. Those who... Uh, what? That text does not say you know, to walk away from people who are out of step with what God is doing in your life. That's not what that text says at all. In fact, let's open up our Bibles. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and they are context, context, and context. But with this verse... Verse 6 will actually provide us the beginning point of our context, and we're going to add after it so that you can see what's going on. So the question is, is Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 teaching us to keep away from people who are negative about what God is doing in our lives? No, it's not. Listen in. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 begins, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness— and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Okay, now what's the tradition that we received from the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul then continues, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, this is fascinating here, if you think about this. The Apostle Paul is saying to separate from people who are being idle. They're not working and being productive with their hands. And the tradition that he re- that they receive from them is of him working night and day to provide himself with his own bread, his own way of paying his rent and things like that. Now, weird, because the Apostle Paul didn't hear just say, well, Lord, I'm expecting because I have the right people around me and I think positive thoughts that I'm expecting overflow in my finances here. No, that's not what this text says at all. Here, Paul is saying, we worked diligently with our hands, right? It was not because we do not have the right, but you gave, uh, but to give you uh, in ourselves an example for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, work night and day, let him not eat. For we, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but are busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. 
Now, notice here, the Apostle Paul is not saying, no, 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 don't worry about earning your own living. What you need to do is think positive thoughts and positive words and stop thinking in terms of lack so that you can have an overflow in the financial part of your life. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying work. And the example I gave you, we worked night and day to provide for ourselves. Night and day, fingers to the bone. We walked uphill, barefoot, in the snow, every day. That's what Paul's saying here. Nothing about positive words and expecting overflow in this part of his life. Nope, not at all. Work hard, night and day. And don't have anything to do with a brother who's not willing to put in the work necessary to meet his own financial needs. That's what that text is about. Now, let me back up the audio just a smidge so that you can hear what Brian Houston does with this text. Well, we'll listen to him in context as he rips this verse out of context in order to fit this false theology that he's imposing on this passage. Listen in. If you want a spirit of overflow in your life, then you have to make the right choices when it comes to relationships. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, the scripture says, withdraw from every brother. It's not even speaking about people in the world. Withdraw from every brother who is out of step, who walks disorderly and is out of step with what God is doing in your life. Those who the scripture says are of a different tradition. It doesn't Notice he's totally mangling this text. Those who are out of step with what God is doing in your life. The text doesn't say that. Those of a different tradition. He's totally not even reading the passage. Who are not in keeping with the tradition that we left you, the tradition to work hard with your hands and earn your living. That's what Paul said. Another church. It means they have a different spirit, a different mentality. And the Bible's strong. It doesn't say, just ignore. It says, withdraw. And so many people wonder why they are not having relationships that are bringing an overflow of life and an overflow of encouragement and they're growing them and stretching them. But if you are just hanging around people whose spirit and mentality is diminishing you, they are building lack into your life. I thank God for some of the wonderful friends that I have on our team and have in this church, the people who what's in them just brings an overflow of encouragement, an overflow of life, an overflow of faith, an overflow of support. Give me that be- the belief that we can stand up and fight another battle and take on another challenge and move forward. I want those people in my life. And that's not what Paul was talking about at all in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, 6 through 12. At all. You are supremely twisting God's word. The destiny that God's given me is too precious for me to allow relationships that are just diminishing, depleting, pulling out from me to rule my life. And I believe that for you as well. Don't build into your life. Don't sit with people who what's in them lacks positive reinforcement. In other words, if it's just negative, 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 don't sit with that. And this isn't this is a message to basically say get away from anybody who says anything negative about Hillsong and Brian Houston. That's really what this is. That portion is about. Somebody says, "Listen, that Brian Houston, he's a Bible twister. He's a prosperity heretic. He teaches the word of faith heresy. Oh, that's a negative, cynical person. You got to get away from them." This is kind of a cultic mindset reinforcement portion of the message. Those who have a lack of empathy. 
for your relationship with Christ and your love for his church. People who have become cynical about the church and cynical about the house that you love. I want to encourage you to do what David says. He says, it will not cling to me. The Bible says, withdraw from those who are of a different spirit. He who deals with wise men will be wise, Proverbs 13, verse 20. But the companion of foolishness will be destroyed. Another person's foolish mentality will leave its mark on you if you don't make a stand. And where there's a lack of empathy for what's important to you. I want to encourage you not to sit there. I just want to be everybody's friend. I I just want to be of everybody. Well, you know what the Bible says about that? In Proverbs 18 verse 4, in the Amplified it says, the person who wants to be everybody's friend is a bad friend. Because friendship needs to make choices. And if there's one spirit... Proverbs 18 verse 4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked, nor to deprive the righteous of justice. Um, maybe you just called out the wrong address, but Proverbs 18.4 isn't about being the friend of everybody, and you're reading it from the Amplified, which is a problem because the Amplified is like those old choose-your-own-adventure novels. Uh, it's choose-your-own-definition. That's how the Amplified works. They pour every definition of, of a word into Every time that it shows up, regardless of context, which means you're not really learning what God's Word says at all when you're reading the Amplified. Mentality there, and another spirit here, and another mentality there, and I just want to stand in the middle and be everybody's friend. Then I'm not supporting this person, I'm not supporting that person, I'm just mediocre. You've got to make choices. If you want to live your life with a spirit of overflow, then don't build your life sitting with people who are depleting you and diminishing you. I couldn't be strong enough on this because I have watched now for all these years of ministry, people who literally ultimately end up out of fellowship, their families breaking up, their children lost to the kingdom of God because they wouldn't cut off negative voices in their lives. And by the way, if you think I'm preaching about anybody or to anybody, I'm not. It's just wisdom for life. Don't play with the stuff. I just want to be everybody's friend. And you end up being nobody's friend. And the bad mentality in somebody else, their pain, their hurt. Do you know if someone has become negative and cynical... And they're offloading on you. It's simply a justification of what... Yeah, again, you got to separate yourself from negative, cynical people. Not sinners. Unrepentant sinners. No, you got to separate from the negative people. If, if, it doesn't matter if they're a sinner, as long as they're positive. Them. And to not challenge it makes you, by default, a party to that spirit and a party to that mentality. I believe that love chastised times where we need to make a stand. We need to make it clear that I love this. I believe in that. I stand with these people. I believe in the spirit. And you need to know that if we are going to have any kind of association or fellowship in life, that this is what I'm about. And it's an offense to me that you keep on attacking everything that's precious to me. That's how sometimes Christians should be courageous enough to talk. Yeah, that's right. Don't you bring your stinking thinking around me. I'm going to take a stand for Jesus and be positive. Doesn't make any sense when you put it that way, does it? 
Don't build company that has a lack of purpose and a lack of vision. Hang around people that lack purpose. Do you know the most uniting thing in Bobby's and my marriage for 28 years has been our common purpose, our common vision. Vision unites people. If you're hanging around people who have no real sense of vision. Vision unites people. Um, what does this have to do with um, Psalm 26, 1 Thessalonians 3? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's just spinning out his own theology now. Sense of purpose for their life. What is it in them that unites you to them? If there's a lack of purpose, if there's a lack of vision, that's not who you want to be sitting with in life. Those who, listen, have a lack of character, a lack of moral fiber, it's only going to deplete you. Those who have a lack of loyalty, a lack of consistency, it'll only deplete you. That's all it will do. Well, number three, we're speaking about things that bring overflow and things that bring lack into our life. When it comes to the way you think, I pray that you will think in a way that brings overflow and overflow of creativity and ideas and of the purpose of God. Yeah, it's all up to you. I mean, if you're not experiencing these things, it's because you don't have positive thinking. You have, apparently, we need to be rescued from lack of ideas and creativity because that's what Christianity is all about. Rather than saving us from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God through the shed blood of Christ, oh, forget that. No, we need... We need vision, purpose, and creative ideas. That's what God really wants us to step into. Lack that diminishes. And lack when it comes to thinking is poor, negative thinking. When it comes to the company you keep, those that bring an overflow of blessing and encouragement, not those that deplete you. And number three, I believe that we need to choose overflow and not lack when it comes to our attitude to God's house. Yeah, our attitude to God's house. And unfortunately, that um, Hillsong there in Sydney, Australia, doesn't qualify. This would not be God's house because God's word is not rightly taught there. They don't teach Christianity there. This is a different religion. So this is not God's house. This would be like the house of Ashira, you know, or the house of Fortuna, you know. But it's definitely not the house of Yahweh. We're reading verse 8. Listen to it. Psalm 26, verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house. It's literally, Lord, I love hanging out at your place. I love the habitation of your house. God, I love hanging out at your place. There couldn't be enough services for me. I love the house of God. I love hanging out at your place, Lord. Have you got that attitude? You got that attitude where you love the house of God. You love the friendships and the relationships. You love to hear the word taught. You love to see the church go forward. You love the vision. You love, friend, can I encourage you to live your life in a way where you enjoy the overflow that comes out of connection to God's house? In my life, anything that I have that's positive, I can attribute back to 51 years of love for God's house. Whether it's my wife, I met her in the house of God. Whether it's our kids who are on course in life. Whether it's my thinking in life. And the sense of purpose that I have. 
and my ability to live a life that's helping people and to travel and to build something for the glory of God, all of it. There's an overflow, an absolute overflow of blessing in my life that has come out of commitment to God's house. And I could start pointing to people here who I've seen over the years with a commitment to God's house and I've seen an overflow. They've grown in their lives. They've grown in their spirit. They have grown in their thinking. They have grown in their faith level. They've grown in their expectation. They have grown in their mindsets. They have grown in the way they speak. They have grown in their stature. And I look around and their families have grown. They're just growing, 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 overflowing. They're being replenished. They're being repleted. Where's it coming from, friend? It's coming from people who have a love for God's house. Who love hanging out at God's place. I love hanging out at God's place. Amen. I love it. In Psalm 5, verse 7, David says, I come into your house, into a multitude of mercies. Listen to it. I come into a multitude, an overflow of blessing, an overflow of mercies. He's saying, my worship is toward the house of God. I live my life toward God's house. I have come into your house in the overflow of your mercy. Friends, teaching, encouragement, life, ministry, prayer, and so on. An overflow of blessing. But if you have the wrong man. Yeah, Psalm 5 is a great psalm. We should read it. I just, you know, I just got to put it out there because what he's saying about it isn't what, this, what Psalm 5 says at all. It's not very long. Here's what it says. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them, not, let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover them with favor as with a shield. Now, the sad part is, is that Brian Houston doesn't see that this psalm actually preaches against him. In this psalm, David prays against those who are evildoers, who have evil in their mouth and flatter with their tongue. And he prays that God would make them bear their guilt rather than forgive them. That's the sad part. Brian Houston is twisting God's word and misses the irony here that if he had just read it in context, maybe, just maybe, God would have convicted him of his sin and his Bible twisting and brought him to repentance. But he doesn't rightly handle God's word. He slices and dices it the way the devil did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. We continue. Then you don't enjoy 
that overflow and so many people's church life just lacks. It's not replenishing. It's not building. If you have a lack of revelation of the cause, you can come in and out of church, but you never get a sense of the cause of King Jesus. Then you're going to lack in your relationship with the house. If you have a lack of ownership, a lack of involvement, when you've got a sense of ownership, you never say, oh, I go to that, that Brian Houston's church. No, no, you, you go to Hillsong and it's your church. It's my church. If people say to me, oh, I go to your church, I say, no, you don't. You go to your church. <laughs> ownership. Ben, my son, yesterday was telling me about a friend of his who actually went overseas for a few months. was staying with Christian friends and he watched these Christian friends and all they did was go to church Sunday morning. And that was the only real sign of any kind of commitment to the cause of Christ. And he didn't like what he saw. But what he didn't like even more was he suddenly realized that's what he looks like. He said it just hit him as he looked at these people and he saw their, their mentality towards serving God and towards God's house. Just somewhere they went once Sunday morning. And he realized, that's what I look like. And he came back completely transformed. He came back and he's got involved in volunteering. He's got involved in leadership in the church. He is sowing in. He came back with a totally different spirit. And now he has the kind of spirit that will bring the overflow that God intends out of your fellowship. But if your spirit is wrong, you won't know that overflow. You do not want to be in a church life where there is a lack of faith and belief in the supernatural. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 talks about those who have a form of godliness, the symbol of... Now, I believe in the supernatural. I don't believe that it's being, uh, well, that it's happening at Hillsong. I believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days by speaking the world into existence, the entire universe into existence. I believe in miracles. Oh, yes. I just don't believe that real, true miracles from God the Holy Spirit are really happening at Hillsong because... Well, I think the right way to put it is the way I just almost accidentally said it. Hillsong is more like hell song because Brian Houston twists and mangles God's word and doesn't teach sound doctrine. He's teaching a different religion altogether. Maybe some of the language is there. The traditions are there. There's a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And the Bible is very clear again. It says, from such turn away. It is not God's plan for you to live in lack when it comes to what is coming out of the house of God. It is the will of God for you to live in an atmosphere of faith and of belief and of supernatural blessing in Jesus' name. I'm telling- that's right. Health and wealth and prosperity. That's what God wants to talk about about itching ears. The Bible doesn't teach any of this, and he hasn't shown the Bible teaching this at all. Otherwise, if the Bible taught this, he'd be able to go to the clear passages where this is laid out, that this is what Christians are supposed to do. But even one of the passages that he brought up, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, when you read it in context, actually speaks against the heresy that he's spewing here. Today, If you are in a place where there is just a lack of belief in God's capacity to work now, do what the Word says. If there's a form of godliness but a denial of the power thereof, turn away. What's in you is too precious to waste it without getting fed with the life of God. 
We need to get ourselves into a place where we are seeing the overflow that God intends out of his house. And if you're not seeing it, you're doing something wrong. I mean, you haven't rightly aligned all these different things. If you're not experiencing this overflow, it's all up to you, of course. Back to our spirit. We, I mentioned, had a prayer meeting here the other day to end all prayer meetings. I just was so inspired by that prayer meeting. The atmosphere of faith, the commitment, the belief, the expectation. It was so exciting. I was so inspired by it. And you know, we, we prayed for rain. We've been praying for rain and other Christians all over are praying for rain. But we didn't just sort of pray with the same spirit. There was just a real sense of faith. It was almost like it will rain. And how cool to wake up the next morning and read this email that someone sent me from the Sydney Morning Herald. The uh, headline was dry, 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 and then the horizon glistens. The next morning it says rain is bound for New South Wales and for the first time in months it is not just coastal showers. Some riverina and Victorian border towns may get as much in one day as they did in all of autumn. A weather system moving eastward across Australia is expected to drop 30 millimetres of rain over some of the state's most drought parched areas on Saturday. Listen to this. It seems like a miracle, says Ali Spark, a senior weather bureau meteorologist. All I was seeing a week ago was dry, dry, dry. It's the first rain that's been worth talking about for two months. Then it says only yesterday. That's the day of the prayer meeting. The Australian Bureau of da-da-da-da-da-da-da. More than half New South Wales winter sowing crops. Ms. Sparks says a high-pressure system stalled over the state for the past two months has been acting as a barrier blocking rain-bearing low-pressure systems. And then it says, it seems like a miracle. Well, listen, I don't know how much we had to do with the rain. I don't know. We're not the only Christians that were praying. We could decide it was a... So he's taking partial credit for the fact that it rained. You know, he doesn't know how much credit they should get, you know, 50 percent, 60, 70, 80 percent. But uh, clearly some of the credit goes to them. Up the next morning and the Weather Bureau says it seems like a miracle. But I want to be a part of a house that is foolish enough to believe that if we ask for rain, it'll rain. Hey. In the book of... James, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. He prayed it would rain and it did rain. I want to be in a house that has that kind of expectation. (laughs) Yeah, and the kind of expectation where you can control the weather with your positive words and thinking. That's not prayer. You walk in here and one leg's damaged somehow or another. And we pray, hey, I'm not, I can't say with absolute 100% certainty you won't walk out like that. But I'll tell you what, we're sure going to give it a good go because I have faith to believe God's word. Um, you have faith to believe God's word, but we're not sure if, it's, if you're going to, you know, if you came in limping and you got a cane or, you know, a walker and, you know, maybe you had a leg blown off in the war or something. Uh, we, we're, we can't guarantee, but I have faith. I can't guarantee that it's really going to, you know, get fixed, but we're going to give it a good, you know, college try. Notice the self-refuting nature of his own theology. God is true to his word in Jesus' name, and I want to have a house of overflow. 
Oh, that wasn't a miracle. That was just a fluke. I would rather have people who have an overflow of expectation. They just put too much on God. Doesn't matter what happens. They see a street called Cross Street and they see it as a sign. Oh, the blessing of God is here. (laughs) Than somebody who's a cynic and can't see God anywhere. Come on, let's have a spirit of overflow in our lives. And it comes down to the way we think. It comes down to the company we keep. It comes down to our attitude towards the house of God. You can, with a spirit of receptivity, just a receptive spirit, you can have an overflow of blessing out of the house of God. But if you come in, there's no real expectation. I went down to that Hillsong church and no one spoke to me. It's like you made it a mission. It was the fact you walked in looking like an axe murderer that got us all scared. (laughs) But if you come in with an attitude of friendship and life, we do our very best not to let you get out of here without anyone speaking to you. When it comes to the Word of God, a spirit of receptivity. If you're sitting there when the guy's speaking... And we're trying to bring life to you. We're preaching faith and preaching hope. And you wonder why there's a spirit of lack over your life and not a spirit of overflow. But it's like in the book of Ezra. Remember when Ezra in Ezra chapter 8 opened the book and he only had the Old Testament to preach. He didn't even have the new covenant. He only had the Old Testament. But when Ezra opened the book in Ezra chapter 8 verse 5, the scripture says he opened the book and the people of God stood to their feet, both hands in the air, shouting, Amen, Amen, as then they fell prostrate to the floor. That's receptivity. That's where you get overflow out of the word of God. (laughs) When Paul Yong comes tonight, And he's preached once last night. Another Word of Faith heretic, that one from uh, New Zealand, Paul DeYoung. Times already he's preaching one, two, three, five times today. And he comes into the service not expecting such a powerful, positive response. And he trunches up to the pulpit with his Kiwi walk. And he sits down there. And he... And he... And he... Opens the book. I know where I'm preaching. I'm preaching over here. Amen. Because on the front row, they got their hands in the air, but that's about all they could manage. The leader of Christian feminism, Australia, right here. Let's have a spirit of receptivity. Then you'll get an overflow out of God's house. Then you'll get an overflow out of his word. If when it comes to connecting and building friendships, there's nothing friendly about you, you'll live in lack. But if you get into a connect group and you connect with people and you contribute and you support and you reach out to other people, you'll live in overflow. Amen. Thank you, Father. for. You don't need a Jesus for any of that, do you? No, just apply the right positive thinking and uh, ideas and principles to your life, and blammo, you'll have over overflow. I mean, it's as you know, it's just like hitting the you know, going to the pool table. You know, you take the white ball, you pull the cue back, you hit the white ball, and then it hits another ball, and blammo, it falls into the pocket. That's how it works. Just apply the the faith filled uh, positive thinking principles to your life, and you'll have overflow because that's what God wants you to have, and. 
Brian Houston never actually rightly handled a single passage. That entire sermon? Yeah. No, this is a different religion. That's not Christianity. That's one of the mind science cults. That's more akin to the New Age. That has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. That isn't Christianity. That's a completely different religion altogether. One that cannot save and one that fills you with delusions of grandeur and turns God into your houseboy, your servant. And, uh, well, of course, he can't help you unless, of course, you're out there doing the, the right things and applying the positive principles and, and, and engaging in the positive thinking. But when you do that, then God's there to help you. And like a genie, uh, make your cup overflow so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and not have any lack. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried for your sins, for mine, and was raised again bodily from the grave for our justification. That's a completely different religion than the one that you just heard. Absolutely sad and tragic. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>